This is News Talk on the VOCM Bigland FM radio network. The views and opinions on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your News Talk host, Linda Swain. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Richard the studio with you this afternoon for News Talk uh, on a fairly chilly, I would I, I, I would venture to guess, uh, Wednesday afternoon here in the metro region, uh, but still, you know, still livable. It's not freezing cold, nor is it ridiculously hot, so it's, I, I think we're at that just right um, portion of the week here now. Um, there's We have a lot to go through here on today's program. Uh, we're going to check in with... Uh, and homelessness St. John's uh, to talk about the uh, homelessness population and the situation that they're seeing there. Uh, we're also going to talk about mushrooms for a little while and a little uh, for a little bit here on the program. Uh, we're also going to check in with a local veterinarian who's warning dog owners about the presence of heartworm in the community. We'll tell you all about what you need to know there as well. We're going to head on out to Flat Rock uh, where seniors out there um, are getting a new walking trail. Uh, they The federal government held the news conference um, earlier today, so we're going to revisit that as well. Uh, but first, let's check in with today's VOCM News question of the day. And today we are asking, do you agree with the move to allow all students in the province to ride the bus no matter how close they are to their school? And of course, that's in reference to uh, the provincial government deciding to do away with that 1.7 uh, kilometer busing rule that was in place uh, for as long as I can remember. Um, current results on the question of the day overwhelmingly 83 percent agree with getting rid of that busing rule uh 17 percent uh saying no there's still loads of time to have your opinion on today's vocm news question of the day just head on over vocm.com our poll is going to be open for the rest of the day uh so you can have your say now as you mentioned uh or sorry as jolene uh grimes mentioned uh in the news uh, currently sitting at 15 degrees in st john's uh, just having a look at some temperatures across the rest of the island pretty much the same thing seems as uh the closer that you get to central it seems the warmer things get uh, currently 18 degrees in gross morn uh, same thing in Grand Falls, Windsor. Uh, looking ahead at Labrador, currently 13 degrees and some drizzle there. Uh, 18 in Happy Valley, Goose Bay, and currently 9 and a little bit of sun in Nain. And that segues perfectly to the first interview on today's program because we're going to talk uh, with David Neal from the Gander Weather Office. I reached him a little while ago because I was looking at the forecast and it looks as though uh, there's a little bit of precipitation uh, in the forecast for the next couple of days. Some people would say uh, that that's really well needed. Uh, of course, here in the metro region, we've been having, uh, a, a, there's been a fire ban um, in effect. So um, I reached David Neal to find out what's coming up in the forecast. Uh, a couple of systems that are coming through, uh, basically say, both taking kind of similar tracks as they track towards the island. So uh, the first one is actually uh, making its way uh, across the Maritimes there today, and we're uh, seeing some uh, some rain pushing into uh, into parts of the island already ahead of that uh, so far today. That's going to spread uh, across the remainder of the island through uh, through the night tonight, and likely going to linger uh, over many areas through uh, through most of the day tomorrow, possibly into tomorrow 
night. So that system generally looking at anywhere from about uh, 10 to 20 millimeters across most of the island, with the exception of, uh, of parts of the south coast, which could see uh, amounts a bit higher, possibly in the 30 to 40 millimeter range by the time it's all uh, it's all said and done. So that's first system comes through. We take uh, we have a, a little bit of a, a brief uh, a brief break there uh, on Friday for some areas, though there could still be a few spotty showers kicking around through the day on Friday. But then another system moves in Friday night, and that's going to spread another uh, another period of rain across the island Friday night uh, into Saturday. So yeah, certainly uh, uh, a few days of uh, of wetter weather uh, on the on tap. Now, we've had a fire ban in place here in the metro region for the last couple of days, so I guess all this wet weather on the way uh, would bode well in terms of uh, preventing that. That would, yeah, that would certainly help in uh, in uh, in quelling some of those uh, those drier conditions that we've seen, and uh, yeah, that uh, that area should uh, should move in there tonight. That first uh, that first band, so that should uh, should certainly help with uh, uh, with uh, hopefully uh, getting a bit more moisture down. That's for sure. And now we spoke a lot about the island, Newfoundland. Uh, is Labrador expected to see any of this rain? Uh, yeah, we're uh, we're looking at that system coming through uh, Lab West. Uh, looks like they're uh, they'll get they'll have some rain with that as well. Um, might not, doesn't look like the system's going to impact all of Labrador, but uh, it looks like it's going to move in through um, quite a few quite a few areas of uh, of Labrador uh, over the next couple of days. So so that uh, that region as well, uh, we'll see some uh, some some impact from or some uh, some of the precipitation uh, from uh, from this uh, certainly this first system uh, as we go go ahead with the next one um, again it uh, looks like parts of Labrador not necessarily all of Labrador it looks like Lab West may uh, may escape the second one that's coming in uh, but the remainder of, uh, of Labrador looks like uh, we'll get uh, some some precipitation from that second system at least now I know one thing that a lot of people are going to be wondering about David uh, especially over the next couple of days is the temperatures I know that at least here in the metro region it's felt pretty fall like uh, over the last couple of days are, are things expected to go up uh, more around seasonal over the next couple of days. Uh, now just looking at the short term uh, generally uh, looking at temperatures likely staying a little bit below uh, 20 degrees for a couple of days but it does look like as we get uh, more into the later part of the weekend should should see uh, the temperatures come up a little bit more uh, and as, same thing kind of elsewhere on, on the island as we get a little bit later into the weekend start to see temperatures get up into the uh, likely the low 20s at the very least uh, so start to see a, a little bit uh, more warmer weather but uh, certainly uh, as you said it it, it it certainly has almost that that kind of like early fall feel a little bit uh, uh, across uh, across the island so far, uh, in, in, at least into in, in, as over uh, the last couple of days, certainly. Excellent. David Neal with the Gander Weather Office. As always, I thank you so much for your time today. No problem. Thanks for having me. And there you have it. That is David Neal. Um, I do want to mention, uh, I spoke with David about 20 minutes ago, and just after we finished our conversation, about two minutes later, he called back uh, to let me know the slight co correction to what he said. Um, the temperatures should actually um, 
increase on Friday up to around uh, the the low 20s um, as that system moves out. So a little bit of a slight correction there. And for uh, some, that might be a little bit of good news that the warm weather will be returning a little bit more quickly. I know that some really enjoy the... uh, the fall weather and and they welcome a little bit of the cooler temperatures claudette what do you prefer okay so i'm goldilocks you know know, (laughs) i like it just right i don't like it too hot at all and i love the fall but i also appreciate the warm summer nights when moths and mosquitoes are not around so when it has a cool enough breeze to kind of Hmm. keep them at bay (laughs) see i'm one i'm one of the other extremes i'm like palm trees year round i like it hot oh yeah yeah i i i know some it's not everyone's cup of tea but i enjoy the 25 to 30 degree weather that's where i'm most comfortable i know it's not everyone everyone's cup of tea but i enjoy it well that's impressive um i guess you're not one to want to be outside in the winter because I know you're a gym person. Yes, yeah. I, you know, I don't mind the the cold weather. It's, it's when, the, when we get into the extremes. Yeah. That's when I'm like, uh, not really. But no, I I love it. Palm trees year round, tropical island in Newfoundland. I'd love it. Oh, you know, that could happen in the future. <laughs> the way the temperatures are going. But that's a whole other topic. Yes, change. it is. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Um, we're gonna go to our first break of the day here on News Talk. When we come back, uh, we're gonna check in with the executive director of End Homelessness St. John's uh, to check in on what's going on with the local uh, homelessness homeless population pardon me in the community. Uh, That's coming up next here on News Talk. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. And welcome back to the program. Richard Duggan in with you this afternoon. Uh, Now, if you walk through downtown St. John's on a regular basis, you have likely had a first-hand glimpse of people who are without a home. They are spending their nights on a bench in the grass around Colonial Building or in the last few days, sleeping in and hanging their belongings to dry on the rails of the pavilion in Bannerman Park. Doug Pawson is the executive director of End Homelessness St. John's, and he spoke with uh, co-host of your VOC mornings ben murphy for an update on homelessness in the community is the homelessness problem worsening here in the province or is it simply just becoming more visible yeah that's a good question and it's tough to to think about that because we often will look at folks maybe panhandling um, and and think that they're homeless when they, when they may be home but housed but they're just supplementing their income uh, with, with, with those exercises, with that activity, right? But um, we are seeing more and more folks who are rough sleeping. So that would be, you know, as you said, uh, sleeping in parks and tenting out. Um, and that happens oftentimes in the summer months. Um, and that coincides with just an overall increases in homelessness numbers that we're seeing through the spring and into the summer months. Yeah, and how difficult is it to get an accurate count of the homeless population? Yeah, that's a great question. Again, it's a, it's a pretty nuanced answer, but I'll just start with saying, you know, we, we do our best to measure this through a number of different sources of, of, of data. Um, but what we what we try to do is, is is present as much of an accurate number that we can. So in June, for example, when we pu- published our latest numbers, we had seen 278 folks in St. John's who are experiencing homelessness, and about 180 of those that we knew of who were experiencing chronic homelessness. So that's prolonged periods 
uh, of homelessness six months or, or longer in the last year and 18 months or longer in the last three years. So, you know, pretty pretty extensive challenges for folks who are going without homes for pre- long periods of time. But in terms of the accuracy, it, it, you know, we, we rely on much shelter numbers, for example. We rely on people in the community reporting individuals. Um, but that poses challenge in finding folks who are hidden homeless. So those folks who may be uh, couch surfing, those folks who may be um, staying in overcrowded housing, and that's a real challenge, especially in urban areas, in rural areas where housing affordability is becoming a real challenge. Also, folks who are staying with partners who may be violent because there is no other place to access. So finding the right number is always a challenge, especially given how dynamic it is. But um, overall, given the, the sources that we, we are looking at and the way in which community reports us, we're seeing these numbers continually rise. Doug, what factors are contributing to the visible increase in homelessness in areas in and around the downtown? Yeah, I think that's another another good question, especially during the summer months when more and more people are out and about. They're seeing folks who may who may be presenting as homeless, who may be panhandling on corners or on streets, and and these are regular occurrences in, in larger centers. And so, um, it doesn't mean necessarily that folks who are panhandling. Um, uh, are, are homeless, but it does show a sign that poverty and, and, and is, is deepening and the lack of housing that we would look at in the community, especially deeply affordable housing, social housing, it's not as available or accessible. And as a result, people are being squeezed out. And we talked about this you know, more broadly around just housing affordability and affordability crisis. Folks who are already living on the margins are now being squeezed out. Folks who are unable to pay utility arrears, food, rent, they're being squeezed out of their homes, especially as the housing market goes goes unchecked. We're speaking with Doug Pawson, Executive Director of End Homelessness St. John's. And Doug, on most nights, are there enough spaces at shelters so anyone who needs one can get one? I mean, by and large, there is an attempt to make sure there's enough space. The summer months pose challenges, and and because we rely on overflow spaces in in, in, in across the province with with hotels, the tourism season comes through; those spaces are, are no longer there. Also, being in a shelter doesn't necessarily work for everybody. Not everybody wants to be in a congregate style setup. Um, they don't necessarily want to be around people who may be uh, using substances, for example, and so they may leave and resort to tenting because they would prefer that, similar to any one of us taking a weekend and going camping. For example, like you, you would go into into a situation in which you feel comfortable doing. When we see people who may be sleeping in parks or in the woods, and then we see authorities remove these people who are sleeping in parks and woods, does it simply just result in them finding another outdoor spot to sleep for the most part? Yeah, I mean, typically what we're, you know, we see with the city of St. John's, for example, you know, bylaw is really great at just, you know, letting community partners know that there may be individuals in a specific location and they won't interfere with those folks if they don't absolutely have to due to health or safety reasons. Um, but what we'll see is if folks are being asked to leave, especially public spaces, then they'll resort to more, um, more you know, quieter, uh, more uh, reclusive spaces, and that can pose uh, a different set of challenges for folks trying to connect with with their supports or services. So, so it does shift the problem, even if we're not able to to find an appropriate solution like shelter or housing for them. And um, you know, it, it really doesn't solve the issue. But but I will say that you know, collectively as a community, the city of St. John's, we have been working really well to make sure that at least somebody who's being identified can get can get access to a support to make sure that they're they're able to move safely or securely if that's required. How close is the connection between homelessness and mental health and addictions issues? 
Yeah, that's a great question, and it's really closely linked. Uh, we released our, our point-in-time counter pick count report last uh, last spring, and uh, that was done um, on November 24th of last year. That one night snapshot showed 183 individuals experiencing homelessness on that, that given day, and 74% of those respondents who were surveyed identified as having a mental health um, and a disability, mental health issue. So we think of, of this, uh, you know, if you extrapolate that, that number, that, that 74% across the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people over a given course of a year who may be experiencing homelessness, we're starting to see mental health play a significant role in people's um, uh, experiences in homelessness. And what, what that really means is um, if they're unable to get services or supports uh, and they're unable to access, the, you know, say, medication that they might need, um, they're going to, their mental health may deteriorate. And what we see really is, is you know, shelters becoming a de facto um, place that, that supports folks with mental health issues. And they're just simply have never been designed or equipped to do that. And that poses a whole host of new challenges that, that more recently, you know, St. John's and, and folks across the country are now now having to deal with. And it, and it poses operational challenges. It poses uh, real concerns that folks who are in most need of those supports are just unable to access it. What potential solutions could address the homelessness issue? Yeah, this is this is a big one because it's an all of government solution and, and um, an issue, right? So we need all hands on deck, and we need to be really solutions focused. Um, you know, I've said for years before that I've never met a person who's grown up and said, you know, what I want to be when I grow up is homeless or I want to be poor. These are systemic failures that lead people to these experiences, and there's there's no one pathway into homelessness, and there's no one pathway out. So we need to look at multitude of solutions, whether it's housing solutions, health solutions. Uh, we need to be working all together, all hands on deck, you know, and this is an all of government solution, provincial, federal, municipal, and they need to work really closely with community to help identify those partners, those solutions that work in those communities and be working together. And um, too often we see finger pointing around, around those tables between whose responsibility is it or not. We need solutions. We need to be solutions focused. And, you know, if all hands are on deck, it's hard to be getting work done when it's when you're pointing fingers. And there you have it. That is Doug Pawson of End Homelessness St. John speaking with VOCM's Ben Murphy. All right, before we head to the news, I uh, do want to bring you an update now on a story that we brought you uh, last week. Uh, last week, we told you that uh, Munsu, the Munsu Student Union, um, is worried that the Munsu Student Wellness and Counseling Center could be at risk of losing its accreditation and as a result, closing. Well, Memorial University sent out a statement a little while ago on that situation, and they say that uh, the uh, center is not at risk of closure closure or decreased services. Um, they say that it's important to distinguish between the counseling center and one of its programs, the Doctoral Residency and Professional Psychology Program. Uh, they say that the center itself does not require accreditation to operate, whereas the Doctoral Residency program um, is an accredited program run through the center and that program is under the normal process of reaccreditation. So they just sent out 
that statement uh, a little while ago, and they are reassuring that uh, the center is not at a risk of closure or decreasing its services. Um, and we'll have a more wholesome look at uh, at that story uh, tomorrow morning on VOCM.com and uh, throughout the news on air as well. All right, that just about does it uh, for this segment of the program. We're going to head to the news now in a moment, but coming up after the break, uh, we're going to talk uh, about mushrooms because doctors in Quebec are warning people that foraging for mushrooms uh, should be careful because of a recent spike in mushroom poisonings there. So we spoke with an expert to find out about what's going on here in Newfoundland and Labrador as well. We're going to speak to a local veterinarian about heartworm, what that is, how it can affect your dog. Uh, we're going to find out what all about that coming up uh, from Dr. Maggie Brown Burry coming up in just a little bit here on News Talk as well. All right, let's go to the news and we'll be back right after this. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Well, thank you very much, Sarah. This is Richard Duggan here on News Talk with you this afternoon, and let's keep things rolling here on the program. Doctors in Quebec are warning people foraging for mushrooms to be careful what they pick and eat because of a recent spike in mushroom poisonings there. That got us thinking about the situation with mushrooms in this province. What's edible and what's toxic? toxic. Andres Wojtek is the author of A Little Illustrated Book of Common Mushrooms of Newfoundland and Labrador. He spoke with co-host of your VOCM Mornings, Ben Murphy. So what mushrooms are most common here in the province? <laughs> well, that's a that's a little little difficult. Let's take it simply. What you're looking at, the commonest mushrooms that we see generally are those with a cap and stem. And if you look at them closer, the cap underneath will have either gills, those are probably the most common, or they will have pores, um, uh, the bolites, or they may have teeth like the sweet tooth. Or cap and stem mushrooms may be brainy like, uh, like a morel. So that's the commonest. Then we have puffballs. We have mushrooms that look like little clubs, conks, you know, on the trees. All, those are all mushrooms. Coral mushrooms, they look like little corals. Cups and jelly mushrooms. So that's the sort of thing. But we have a, a vast variety of mushrooms in the province. Yeah, what are the most popular and edible ones? Um, probably the most popular edible mushroom in this province are, are chanterelles. We have uh, a new species, well, it was new when it was described, which is named after the province, uh, chanterellus enelensis. NL, of course, meaning Newfoundland Labrador. Ensis is Latin for derivation or from, so from Newfoundland. Uh, so we have chanterelles. Those are the, probably the most common and the easiest to recognize. They're uh, very um, good. People like them. Then we have things like shaggy mane, sweet tooth, king bolites, birch bolites, various bolites like that. And then we have a couple of specialties, not very, very common, but people hunt them because they have a cachet about them. Uh, morels in the spring and pine mushrooms so that that's about the edible 
And where's the best place to look for some of these? Um, if I told you, I'd have to, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and I can take care of you, but what about all the listeners? Uh, <laughs> that's a big job. You know, fair enough. Uh, I can well, absolutely understand that. I guess that. In, in, in a very short way, the best place to look for them is outside. Okay, noted. So, do we have any poisonous ones here in the province that people should be aware of? Oh, we sure do. We have lots of poisonous mushrooms. Every place has. The difference between Newfoundland and the mainland is that because of several ice ages that have raised the rock, that's why we call it the rock, because most of the most of the soil's gone, uh, we don't have as many plants or trees and therefore, we, because mushrooms and trees partner up oftentimes, we also have less mushrooms. Uh, so we may have le- less edibles and we may also have less toxic ones. But we do have lots of toxic ones. Um, the, there are two uh, lethal ones. One is the Amanita group. Most of the Amanitas... Uh, have a lethal toxin that will kill you, uh, and and uh, we have a quaternarius, couple of quaternarius species that have the same toxin in them, and then we have several toxic mushrooms that don't, won't kill you but w- could make you very very ill. So we do have uh, poisonous mushrooms, if you wish. So how can you identify those that aren't fit to eat? trick you know you, you hear about and and read about the various things if you put a penny or a silver coin in or something this is not true at all the, the the toxins are all different and they have different chemical reactions there's no way to pick up any any single this the the way to do this is you you need two things you need to be able to identify the things that you can eat and you need to be able to recognize those things that uh, you cannot eat or should not eat. Uh, every mushroom is edible once, but you may may not be around the second time, so you better know. Are you seeing an increase in interested people in foraging for mushrooms? A lot, a lot. Um, uh, we have... Um, Restaurant named after mushrooms. There's there's a, there's a Chantelle Chantelle restaurant. There's a Chantelle Drive. In in 20 years, 20 years ago, you you would never see a mushroom other than the button mushroom in the, in the supermarket. Now you see a choice of of various edibles in supermarkets. Most of the uh, uh, better, uh, I shouldn't say better, but most of the sort of more varied restaurants uh, will offer wild mushrooms uh, on, on the menu, either in a sauce or some other way. Um, so they're very, very common. There, there's a, an increasing foraging activity with uh, various websites. We have our own mushroom club. Uh, we have commercial pickers in the province which was a rarity before so there's a huge increase in 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 mushroom interest so where can people get a copy of a little illustrated book of common mushrooms of newfoundland and labrador 
Um, the, I, the, the, the Grossmorn National Park stores have copies. The Grossmorn Cooperative uh, Association store in uh, Rocky Harbor also has copies. And you can look them up online and order online if you're not in the Rocky in the Grossmorn area. Uh, many other stores carry them. I, I don't honestly know, but I know that here in Cornerbrook, where where I live, the stores have them. And um, uh, I think I think you can also order it on Amazon. And there you have a very interesting conversation there between Andrus Voigt and co-host of your VOCM Mornings, Ben Murphy, talking about mushrooms and some of the dangers and the risks that people need to know about if uh, they're out and about and they look like they're going to go picking. And I know, Claudette, you had an interesting story um, that you're going to share about that you were reading about mushrooms as well. Yeah, and it doesn't have a, a happy ending, unfortunately. So when I heard this on our news program, I immediately thought of the recent news story that uh, has come to light out of Australia. So homicide investigators are trying to figure out how three people died, a fourth became critically ill, all after they ate wild mushrooms that were prepared for them at lunch. Um, Now what's interesting is the woman who cooked it, she was separated from her husband. Um, Her children didn't have that meal, but she did give it to the in-laws, and the in-laws are the ones that who had passed away from eating the wild mushrooms at lunch. I don't trust myself to pick the right mushrooms. <laughs> like, I would be afraid to serve up wild mushrooms that I forage, forged. Because as you heard in the interview, uh, Richard, that it's easy to mistaken uh, certain mushrooms for ones that are bad for ones that are good. Absolutely. No, I, I wouldn't trust it at all. No way. So. And it's pretty trendy, too. I also read an article recently about shaga, which is off the birch tree, I believe. Uh, that's quite popular and, you know, full of all of these antioxidants. Uh, people are having that as tea. Um, that's another one that, that is supposed to be growing in abundance here in, in Newfoundland and Labrador. I'm just so impressed with the foragers who are, have the confidence to pick the right one and to sell it because you, you see these mushroom products being sold uh, so at uh, local markets as well. Absolutely. So there you have it, folks. you got to be careful what you're picking. Most definitely. All right, we're going to go to our final break of the day here now on News Talk. And when we come back, uh, we're going to talk about heartworm and a local veterinarian who is uh, wanting to get the word out and a warning to pet owners about some of the risks associated with that. And uh, also, if we have time, we're going to head on over to Flat Rock because seniors there are getting a new walking trail. That's all coming up right after this. Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. And welcome back to the show. Richard Duggan in with you this afternoon. Well, heartworm isn't typically something that Newfoundland and Labrador dog owners would need to worry about. However, one local veterinarian says that we should. Vet Dr. Maggie Brown Burry spoke with Patty Daly on VOCM Open Line earlier today to discuss what exactly heartworm is and what dog owners should be looking for. So I, I wanted to chat with you a little bit about heartworm, um, which in case anyone doesn't know, is a very literal name. It is a worm that will live in the heart of your dog. 
Um, and it's not something that um, we really discuss with our clients in Newfoundland because in Canada, the areas of risk are more um, southern Ontario, southern Quebec, southern Manitoba. Um, and out here, we don't typically worry about it um, because we don't have the right climate. Okay. Uh, but lately, there's been a lot of people adopting dogs from Texas. Um from all over the world, really, but in Texas in particular, seems to have a, a really robust uh, dog rescue system and for getting those dogs, finding them homes across uh, across the continent. Um, and Texas is one of the top five locations for heartworm. Um, so dogs in Texas, basically, they have heartworm unless proven otherwise, and they don't think of it as being a big deal because it's so common down there. So they will adopt out these dogs that are heartworm positive, not really realizing that they're sending the dog somewhere where people don't know a lot about heartworm. Before we get into like a worm living in the heart sounds particularly dangerous. What is the danger? Uh, so a lot of the time if a dog has like a heartworm infection, uh, they might seem very healthy. When it first is in the dog, it doesn't necessarily cause any big problems for them. But what can happen is as those worms grow uh, in the heart, they can cause obstruction to the blood flow out of the heart and cause really severe heart failure. So it can be deadly. Exactly, yeah. Okay. So is there any way to identify whether or not a dog being adopted from Texas or anywhere else has heartworm? A lot of the time, these dogs coming from Texas will have some medical records that will say when they were tested and what the results were. Um, and a lot of them will come up saying that they are positive. So it's really important that people that are getting these dogs follow up with a veterinarian here um, to either retest and confirm the infection before starting treatment uh, or to start treatment and then do the follow-up. Um, one thing that's important to note, though, is that it takes about six to seven months after after you are infected before it will show up on a test. So if you're getting like a young dog, like a five or six month old puppy, um, they will not have tested it because there's no way they could have been infected long enough ago for the test to show it. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't follow up with additional testing once you bring that dog here to Newfoundland. Uh, and the reason that this has been coming up lately is Adopting dogs from Texas has been going on for a while now, and some of the veterinarians across the province are seeing dogs that have been living here uh, for over a year who never did that follow-up, doing the test and finding out that they've been living with heartworm this whole time. Um, and then our concern is with climate change, the temperatures are changing, and we have been meeting the criteria for transmission in Newfoundland. And if these dogs are living here with heartworm, could they be putting other dogs at risk because uh, we do have mosquitoes here and mosquitoes are how the disease is spread. That's what I was going to ask because I mean uh, you know becoming infected I was wondering how that even happened so it's as simple as transmission via mosquito. Yeah and, and the the trick is that it has like a mosquito has to bite an infected dog picks up the tiny like baby worms in the bloodstream um, and those worms continue to develop inside the mosquito and then when the mosquito bites another dog it passes on the more mature worms um the, the reason we haven't worried about it in newfoundland is that that uh, maturation inside the mosquito takes about a couple of weeks and it, the temperature the mosquito is living in has to stay above a certain point for those couple of weeks um and especially in st john's uh we don't often stay sort of above 14 degrees celsius 24 7 for two weeks straight 
Um, but looking historically, Gander is one place that I have looked at the, the historical temperature data at because I know of several dogs in that area. Um, a month and a half uh, last year, we met the requirements pretty consistently. So there is a there is definitely a risk that whether or not heartworm can be transmitted in Newfoundland, uh, whether that's possible or not, there is a risk that that's changing. Um, and so if people are adopting these dogs, and I'm not trying to discourage people from adopting these dogs from Texas, uh, I just want people to be more aware of the risk of heartworm and maybe even just bring it up with your veterinarian whether or not you need to be testing your dog again. Um, a lot of the tick and flea products that we use for all other kinds of parasites also cover for heartworm. So a lot of people's dogs are protected, um, but you know we are just taking unnecessary risk if we don't follow up on these dogs coming from other areas and the diseases that they're bringing in with them. I was going to ask about, you know, protecting your dog, which is not from Texas, from being infected with heartworm. But so let's say I get my dog tested and it's positive for heartworm. Then what? So there are treatment options, um, especially if the dog is not having any symptoms. Um, the big thing that uh, people need to sort of recognize is that it is a long process to treat them. Um, so, you know, if the dog comes up from Texas, I, I do appreciate that because people are not familiar with heartworm, they're given a couple of weeks of pills that come with the dog and they think, okay, when this is done, I'm done. Um, but we actually do treatment for at least a month. And then there's a lot of follow-up with dogs that have symptoms. Um, there's a additional medication that has to be given and there is so there's a organization that's in the United States called the Heartworm Society and they are a website it has information for uh, pet owners as well so they have stuff broken down for pet owners and it's just heartwormsociety.org um, but their sort of treatment protocol is a year long um, now you're not on medication for that whole year but they basically you're on medication for like three months and then you test again after three more months and then you test again um, nine months after you finish the medication so it's a year-long process before we can say you're definitely clear of heartworm um, they because the worms are in the heart, there is risks with the treatment, uh, and it is something that has to be monitored quite closely. And if the dog is starting to show symptoms of heart disease, uh, then there is a lot of risks while going through the treatment. But it is something that can be treated. It's just that if we don't know it's there, we're not treating it, and then there's risk. So what would symptoms look like? Are we talking about a persistent cough or something? Yep, so coughing is definitely one thing that we look for. The kind of heart failure that heartworm will cause um, causes ascites, which is when fluid builds up in the belly. Um, so if you have a dog who's coughing and their belly looks bloated, and this is a dog that you adopted from Texas, that's going to be really high on our list is that they have heartworm causing heart failure. Um, but again, a lot of dogs with heartworm you can't tell just by looking at them. When I, I went to school in Ontario where there is quite a bit of heartworm and we always would be shown dogs who, hey, this dog who looks perfectly healthy actually has heartworm. Um, and then we would sort of follow them through the treatment and all of that. But, uh, you know, once you start to have that heart failure, the risk is so, so much higher. It is much better to catch it before their symptoms, um, which means if you're bringing in these dogs from, from the southern U.S., um, from places where it's warm and they have mosquitoes, talk about heartworm with your veterinarian. Make sure that you have completed all the tests to say this dog is in the clear. Um, even if you're using the preventives, 
to prevent if they came with heartworm those preventives aren't going to necessarily get rid of the heartworm. So that was the last one before I let you go. So can it be cured or are we simply managing the issue once diagnosed? It can be cured. Yeah, okay. you can you can end up with a negative status and then you can just take it off the list unless you go on a trip. And there you have it. That is Dr. Maggie Brown-Burry speaking on VOCM Open Line with Patty Daly earlier today about heartworm. So, yeah, if you have uh, adopted a dog from anywhere in the United States, particularly down in Texas, uh, might want to keep an eye out uh, for heartworm. Um, all right, before we say goodbye for the afternoon, I understand, Claudette, that uh, you have some information to share. I do. Uh, we had a motorist call in with this tip. There is a mother duck and her baby chicks trying to cross the highway at the bottom of Weir's construction by the guardrail. Figured I'd uh, give a heads up if possible. Thank you for that. Now, mate, yeah, definitely make sure that you're watching out for that mother and her sweet little ducklings. Let's, let, let's make sure that she, she gets across the street safe and sound um, and make sure that, uh, you know, they have a happy day, as all ducks deserve. Have you ever been behind a duck and the mother trying to cross? That's happened to me over my holidays, too. And oh, yeah. Four lane, CBS, Kitty Aid's turn. And it's the cutest thing, but oh my goodness, it's so good. I'm so glad that I saw them, because it's so easy, right, to oh, just yeah. come upon them all of a sudden, and then they're all just waddling over to the other side. I always have to be hypervigilant, because I live down by ba- by Bowering Park. Oh, so, so that's, it's yeah. on your radar, and anyway yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and it, they it, it can be so you know like you won't see them sometimes until the last second it's happened to me a couple of times where i'm like it's just right out of the corner of my eye i'm like wait there are ducks trying to cross and like you have to stop really quick so yeah you gotta be careful and it's dangerous too i remember there was a good samaritan this was in the news i believe this year i think it was in toronto where a, a gentleman in his 40s lost his life because he decided to get out and try to help the mother and the ducks cross safely and then a car hit that i mean it's just so many different angles to look at this but i'm so thankful for motorists who are as vigilant as you are richard to help those ducks get across without of course doing anything to harm your own health and actually on on a much more positive note i remember we had a um a story i believe last summer or maybe a little bit earlier there was an rnc officer who stopped on the side of the road and yes and he got the ducks out of the manhole and that was a really sweet story oh that picture came to my mind as well i thought that was so beautiful and so important to take note of those positive stories oh absolutely well on that t- uh, note now on, on the note about ducks we are going to head over now to the VOCM newsroom. Sarah Strickland is waiting with the day in review. Thanks so much and we'll talk to you soon.